Hi everyone, Sarah Schaefer here. Thanks for checking out Art History Happy Hour. The episode that follows is back from when our podcast was called State of the Arts, and you can now find our episode blog and other resources, including a link to our Patreon page at arthistoryhappyhour.com. Welcome back to State of the Arts, the podcast that explores how art and its history shape our world today. My name is Sarah Schaefer. And I'm Tina Rivers-Ryan. We're recording this episode just about a month after the 25th anniversary of one of the most significant cases of art theft. And that was the theft that took place at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston in 1990. And this is... um, Uh, an incident that has garnered a lot of attention, has sort of captured the public imagination ever since, um, in large part because it still remains unsolved. And although this episode is going to be coming out um, well after the anniversary, we thought it would be a good way to delve more deeply into the topic of art theft, which is a really huge issue um, in the art world. Um, And it's one that we've touched on to a certain extent, in other in other previous episodes, um, like the Parthenon marbles and the uh, Crisis in the Middle East episodes. So today, we're going to give an overview of of what happened, how the event occurred, what happened, what was taken, and what we know about the current state of the investigation, while also touching on some of the broader issues and characteristics um, of art theft. The story of the theft at the Isabel Stewart Gardner Museum um, begins at around 1.30 a.m. on March 18, 1990, when two men dressed as Boston police officers uh, showed up at the museum. They buzzed the entrance, they identified themselves as policemen, and claimed that they had heard a disturbance in the courtyard. Uh, One of the security guards on duty let them in, and the thieves claimed that the guard looked familiar and that he thought they had a warrant out for his arrest. So they led the guard away from his desk, um, and also the alarm button that would have alerted the actual police, and asked the guard to summon the other guard on duty. The thieves then handcuffed both guards, and when the second one asked why he was being arrested, the men responded, you're not being arrested, this is a robbery. They brought the guards down to the basement and handcuffed them to poles that were about 40 feet apart. The robbery proceeded, took about 81 minutes in total, The men took 13 works of art from the museum's collection, including three works by Rembrandt, one work by Vermeer, and there's only 34 known works by Vermeer in the world, uh, a painting by Manet, and five Degas drawings. All in all, the works are now roughly estimated to be worth $600 million, but of course, um, their value to art history is priceless. After over two decades without finding the works or figuring out who pulled the heist, in March 2013, the FBI announced that they were offering a $5 million reward for information that led to the safe return of the works. So since 2013, speculation about the persons involved has increased and new leads um, are announced or have been announced in the press. Since the FBI announced this $5 million reward, there's been more and more speculation about um, who might have been involved. There's also um, There have also been new leads, um, but nothing really major has happened up until the past few weeks um, in 2015, uh, at, right around the 25th anniversary of the heist, actually. So we're going to come back to what's been going on in the past few weeks in terms of um, the FBI and, and other persons perhaps having some news on this story. 
But um, we first wanted to, to shift and, and talk a little bit more about the Isabella Stewart Gardening Museum, um, which is a very unique museum um, among the major uh, American museums. And so Sarah's going to talk about that. Isabella Stewart Gardner uh, was a really enthusiastic patron of the arts and also a really avid traveler. She and her husband Jack uh, regularly traveled throughout Europe as well as the Middle East and Asia beginning in the late 1860s, which is pretty interesting because the 1860s, it's still not really easy to travel in in Asia and the Middle East unless you have a lot of money, which they did. The fact that the gardeners are traveling so widely in the 1860s reflects two trends. The first is the the um, phenomenon called the Grand Tour. And Sarah and I, I think have referred to this back in the Parthenon Marbles episode, um, where wealthy Americans would go traveling um, throughout Europe and other far-flung places um, for months at a time in order to sort of discover the world and make contact with civilization, basically, because America was still then kind of a cultural backwaters. The second trend is this rising interest in the art um, of the East and particularly of Japan, which only in the mid-19th century had been opened basically at gunpoint um, to trade with the West. Isabella and, and Jack uh, particularly took to Venice and they really actively participated in, in the social life um, of a number of expatriates who were living there. They became um, particularly close uh, with two artists who were very popular in the late 19th century, uh, mid to late 19th century, John Singer Sargent and James Abbott McNeil Whistler. The two, uh, the two gardeners collected numerous works of art. Um, she was even advised by uh, the young uh, historian Bernard Berenson, who had become very well known later on. Um, and by 1896, it became really clear that their house, which was on Beacon Street in Boston, um, would not hold this collection that they were amassing. Moreover, the two of them envisioned a space that would ultimately be open and accessible to all who loved art. Um, and and this is this is a trend that we discussed um, when when we talked about the Frick Museum. That's another example of um, basically one or two people amassing a collection which they then stipulated after they died would be, um, would remain in the house and be open to the public to enjoy. Um, in eight, so in 1898, um, uh, Isabella bought land on the Fenway in Boston, this, the, which the Fenway had been a marsh and had recently been filled in, um, and that would become the site of the new museum. And this space, if you haven't been there, and I definitely encourage you to go there uh, if you have a chance, if you're in Boston, it's just down the street from the Museum of Fine Arts. Um, the space is very different from museums like the Met or even the Frick, which is also a collection museum, as I just said. Um, it houses uh, her personal collection, which, um, though wide ranging, is not encyclopedic. Um, it also wasn't actually her home, whereas a place like the Frick was Frick's home. Um, the Morgan Library Museum encompasses um, Morgan's home. Um, rather it was a space that she had specifically designed to be a music a museum and she took active part in the design and fruition of the space she really wanted it to be reminiscent of a venetian villa um that that's reminiscent of this place that she and her husband loved so much so um it was it's organized around a central courtyard which has uh, lots of flowers um and this sort of pleasant kind of pastoral 
space, um, she she specifically wanted that um, uh, to stand in opposition to what she saw as the really cold spaces of museums. And, and she also took a hand in deciding how objects would be arranged, how they would be displayed, and kind of thought of the space itself as being a work of art, not just a place that's showcasing works of art, but a place that functions as a work, in, work of art in and of itself. Um, the collection consists largely of uh, works from the Italian Renaissance. Um, uh, one of the highlights, uh, what's thought to be one of the most valuable works, um, is, is one by Titian uh, of the Rape of Europa. So when people talk about the theft in 1990, what seems sort of illogical about it is that at that time, and, and I, I think... Con- Continuing to the present, many people would argue that the Titian work is by far the most valuable work um, in the collection, but they didn't go for, um, the the thieves didn't go for that one. In addition to uh, works from the Italian Renaissance, uh, she collected a number of medieval works um, and works from the Dutch Golden Age. But uh, as we mentioned before, she was also really interested in Asian art. One of the rooms um, uh, in the museum is called the Chinese Loggia. Um, There's also a second Chinese room. There's also a chapel on the third floor, which has 13th century French stained glass made for the Soissons Cathedral. Although um, what is there is only about 40% of the window and the rest is in the Louvre. And actually in in that chapel, every year uh, an Episcopal mass is celebrated. And this was something that was stipulated in her will. It's something that has to be done every year, Uh, which is interesting um, because she had very clear stipulations for what could and could not be done with the space and with the works of art after she died. Um, most importantly, very little could be done to to change uh, the space. So when you go today, you actually, one of the most interesting things you see um, are these empty frames from the works that were stolen. So it, that partially has to do with the fact that she was very adamant about not changing the arrangements of the work, but they're also um, sort of monuments to the theft and to this the ongoing search for for these lost works. Um, and the, the 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 paintings that were stolen were were cut out of their frames um, by the thieves uh, so that they would be easier to roll up and and smuggle out. The Gardner Museum opened to the public in nineteen o three, and um, Again, I I just want to place it within this larger context of this phenomenon um, happening throughout America. So um, we've already referred to the Frick, and Sarah also briefly mentioned the Morgan Library, which is based off the collection of J.P. Morgan, and and Sarah used this word collection museum. And so there's a a vogue starting at the um, end of the very end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th, where um, wealthy Americans, people like J.P. Morgan, people like Henry Clay Frick, um, people like the Gardeners, uh, are thinking about making a, a, a kind of public um, memorial to themselves out of their private collections. Um, and this is actually part of the much larger history of American philanthropy, where a lot of America's greatest early public museums and monuments were supported by private wealthy individuals um, instead of by the state. And so this feeds right back into something we actually discussed with our very first episode on the Detroit Institute of Arts, that um, in Europe, there's a there's a basically a tra- established tradition of the state supporting the arts. And in America, the, our tradition is that it's supported instead by private philanthropists. So Gardner is one of the sort of bold faced names in that history. Mm-hmm. 
And also significant that it's a woman doing it because we don't have many collection museums that um, where the name that is most closely associated with them are, are women. Although we talked about with the Frick that it was Frick's daughter, right, who did, um, who added a lot of um, additions to the collection and took a great hand in, in organizing the space and, um, and the museum's programs uh, after his death, right? Yeah, I mean, in really changing the direction of right. the museum, making it much more the sort of Christian medieval stuff she was into that Frick wasn't. Right. <laughs> Before we move on and talk more about art theft, um, we wanted to just talk about one of the works in particular that was stolen to give you a sense of why it's important art historically. And this is the painting, uh, or one of the three paintings that were stolen by Rembrandt. The work is a painting called The Storm on the Sea of Galilee from 1633. Now, Rembrandt is, he was a Dutch 17th century painter, um, one of the great so-called old masters, um, artists from from the Renaissance onward. Um, uh, who really are sort of the the major figures in Western art. Um, and Rembrandt is generally known as sort of the most famous portraitist and self-portraitist in Western art. Um, he sort of obsessively made images of himself um, more than any other artist, and um, he really has an incredibly incisive way of capturing the human spirit, the sort of indomitable human will, um, and the full range of human emotions, tenderness and defiance. And um, he also was what's called a history painter. And Sarah and I have talked about this in earlier episodes. So um, history paintings are paintings not just of random people, um, like portraits are, but pictures of great people doing great things. Um, and these are larger and, and were considered more important um, to make than just portraits. So if, if history paintings at the top of that hierarchy and portraiture comes in just under it, below that would be landscape painting. Um, and landscape painting, um, well, it's what it sounds like, right? It's paintings of the landscape. It's painting outdoors. Um, and... Uh, I mean, Rembrandt as a landscape artist is just something that you know doesn't really immediately come to my mind when I think of Rembrandt. I think of his portraits, his self-portraits, um, his history paintings. So I, I really wish I had been able to study this painting a little bit more in person. Now, luckily, um, because this was a work of art that was stolen as recently as 1990, it was photographed. And one of the big problems with art theft is that some of these works of art that were stolen, say, earlier in the 20th century or, you know, looted by the Nazis or what have you, there, you know, there's not great documentation of what they looked like you know maybe we only have one photograph maybe it's not in full color even um but we have color photographs of this work so sarah's going to talk about it a little bit more in depth well tina's already given a a, a good in, introduction to it um and and you're right i mean in addition to being known for portraits and history paintings that was how he made his money that was why he did them so much was because there was a huge market for them uh in amsterdam in the netherlands uh in the 17th century um and and that was how artists by and large functioned who were who were trying to um, make an income for themselves was to really target one particular genre and really focus in on that now one of the great things about rembrandt is that he kind of 
pushed at the boundaries of what one would expect of genres and melded them together. So in his portraits, especially his group portraits, they almost become like history paintings. They're not these sort of straight on, um, you know, sort of class photograph images of, of people not interacting with each other. They they tell a narrative. They, 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 they tell a story as well as being portraits. And we see that occurring in this image, um, uh, Storm on the Sea of Galilee, uh, because it, it really is, it, it's a seascape. And, and interestingly, it's, as far as I understand, the one known seascape that Rembrandt did. As Tina mentioned, he didn't do landscape that much. He did landscape some, but not nearly as much as he did um, as he did um, portraits or even history painting. Um, and in this image, uh, it's it's a, an interesting amalgamation of landscape and history painting. So the focus, although you see Christ, and this is a story from the New Testament, you see Christ and his disciples um, in this boat on the sea, the landscape and their struggle with the landscape really is more the focus than than any sort of moral or, or uplifting result that that you can take from from reading scripture from reading the, the biblical narrative um, it's really about the landscape as much as it is the story that's being told and that's not new I mean Bruegel did that we kind of talked about how Bruegel uh, infused landscape and narrative uh, in the, in these new and interesting ways but for Rembrandt because this is um, so focused on landscape and particularly on the sea, it makes it a really seminal, really um, uh, important work uh, in, in his larger body of, of, of paintings. Um, and so it's, it's really, that just adds to the number of reasons why it's unfortunate um, that it's, it's now, uh, we don't know where it is. It also makes this painting an important precedent for later artists like Turner, who would similarly take history painting and landscape and sort of, as you said, like infuse these genres together mm-hmm. um, or, you know, steep them in each other uh, and push against the boundaries in, in ways that, that sort of challenged how we think about history and, and how we record official history and how we um, understand the relationship of humans and historical events in dialogue with the world around us, with the natural world. As Sarah mentioned at the outset of this episode, the Gardner heist has really captured the public imagination. And and um, I agree that I, I think that one of the reasons why is because it um, remains unsolved, but also just the volume of the work stolen and the fact that they were stolen from a museum. But actually, art theft is a, a very uh, large problem that affects not just museums, but also obviously um, private individuals who own works of art and galleries as well. Um, it's a it's a much more common problem than you might think, um, and it has um, some sort of wide ranging repercussions in terms of um, international crime. Yeah, according to the U.S. Department of Justice and uh, UNESCO, art crime is actually the third highest grossing criminal trade over the past forty years, and that's behind drugs and weapons. One of the reasons that um, art theft uh, is uh, in the criminal trade generally thought to be really lucrative is that it has limited paper trails, um, at least limited in comparison to other industries. And it's estimated that art crime um, generates about six to eight billion dollars per year. And this is according to the FBI. There's probably about 50,000 to upwards of 100,000 works of art stolen each year only about 10% are, are ever recovered. And 
you may be wondering sort of how this is possible that so much art is stolen. Well, there are a number of, of factors. One, uh, a lot of museums are not very well guarded. Um, they don't have the funds uh, necessarily to hire the amount of security that's needed to keep an eye on on everything they own, not just stuff that's in the galleries, but stuff that's in storage as well. And many museums have have huge collections that, that aren't on view normally. It's also the case that um, a lot of a lot of works that get stolen are not these really well-known, really high-profile uh, um, um, objects, but are um, things like prints, things like ancient antiquities that aren't so recognizable. So that's the source of of, of probably most of of the art theft that's being that's being reported and being that uh, organizations like the FBI are um, are trying to recover. There's also um, a new, and I just saw this in the news this morning, um, there's a new trend of art napping, Mm. um, of uh, stealing art, not with the intention of selling it on the black market, which is basically what Sarah's been referring to with these, you know, the art theft, um, but of stealing art to ransom it back to the original owners, Mm -hmm. um, which obviously I I would have to imagine is uh, more dangerous for the thieves. Um, but, uh, I guess, you know, they figured they can get money out of it for sure. Yeah. Um, and that's something that comes up a lot when you read about art theft, um, uh, FBI agents and experts in this field are, are generally pretty unanimous in saying that it's rare that stolen art is destroyed. Um, so, uh, you, you might be thinking, oh, this, uh, you know, all these works from the Gardner Museum that no one has seen. There, there have been very few confirmed sightings since the theft um, because they're, they're, uh, many of the leads are, um, uh, or the trail has sort of gone cold at various points um, since 1990 that there might be a chance that these things are destroyed and especially seeing what's going on with ISIS in the Middle East. We talk a lot about art destruction, but the benefit of, of, uh, of, of stolen art in, in, many criminal um, sects, I guess, um, is that, as Tina said, they can be ransomed uh, back uh, to their original owners. Another phrase that I've seen used a lot is that they can basically used as sort of get out of jail free cards for for um, uh, for people who have them in their possession. So the suggestion often is that these that the gardener works at least are still in the hands of related associates to certain um, mafia outlets in the northeast and that it's 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 possible that they're that they're being held on to so that they can be used for um as as a, a tool for bartering later on another potential use of stolen goods um so so far we've got um just profit on the black market we've got um uh, ransoming. We've got using it as a bartering tool with the authorities. Um, also, uh, collateral that mm-hmm. a lot of these criminal syndicates will use these works of art basically as collateral with each other. We'll trade them with each other as collateral, um, uh, you know, to fund various you know criminal activities or as a kind of bartering. You know, so the, you know, art is great beca- for doing this because it is. A highly condensed form of money mm-hmm. that is not electronic and not traceable and fairly easily portable if we're talking about a painting that's just rolled up and put in a tube. Mm-hmm. So. We've been using the phrase art theft a lot, but something you might be thinking of uh, along along the same lines is, is the concept of looting. And of course, that's something that um, we discussed a lot in the Middle East episode. 
um, and and has been in in the public eye. Uh, I mean, a, a lot over the past half century since World War II, since one of the major projects of the Nazis was um, stealing or looting. Uh, artworks in in attempts to um, either destroy them or put them in their own cultural institutions. And this has been the subject of uh, actually a couple movies lately, um, Monuments Men, and uh, recently the, the, the movie Woman in Gold came out which is about uh, the niece of Adele Block Bauer, who was one of um, Klimt's uh, most famous models um, and, and the painting of her that was stolen by the Nazis. It's also um, this idea of art theft actually also shows up in the book The Goldfinch. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. Which, uh, you know, is a sort of major bestseller. Um, I read it on my honeymoon. I was not in love with it. but <laughs> I didn't read that book. I read another one of her books, and I was also not in love with it. <laughs> yeah. So, okay, well, I mean, we're not the only... I also know another art historian who is like, yeah, you're not going to like it. Right. So, and everyone I know who works at the Met also is not in love with it, and not just because she, like, blows up the Met in the first chapter. Right. Um, but anyway, yeah, the the sort of the use of this accidentally stolen painting from the Met is, you know, a major plot of the book. Right. So. Especially since um, 2013, when the FBI uh, started offering this this $5 million reward for information relating to the heist, um, there's been a, a lot of a lot of information uh, on this the state of the heist. Um, three names that you'll often see, um, but and theories of their identities actually began all the way back in 1997. Uh, the first one is Carmelo Merlino, um, and he was a, a mob member and and garage supervisor from from Quincy, Massachusetts. And it, and informants have said they they heard him talking about trading the stolen art for the reward reward and and prior to 2013 there was a reward um, offered by the FBI but it wasn't nearly so large. Um, he Merlino actually died in prison in 2005. Uh, another person whose name comes up a lot is is Leonard V. DiMuzio, um, who was a burglar who has had ties to Merlino. He was also um, he's also deceased. He died. Um, he was shot to death in 1991. A third person is uh, George A. Reisfelder. He actually owned a 1986 red um, Dodge Daytona, which was the same car seen outside the Gardner on the night of the heist. Um, and members of his family have said uh, that the Manet painting that was stolen uh, was in his apartment three months after the burg- burglary. Um, he's also deceased. He died of an apparent drug overdose in 1991. Um, interestingly, relating to contemporary politics, Reisfelder was actually defended um, by John Kerry in 1982 on a murder con- conviction, so something unrelated to the Gardner heist. But Kerry's name always comes up. Uh, when or often comes up when you are looking into the history of this of this event. And in May of last year, the uh, lead FBI investigator, uh, Special Agent Jeff Kelly, identified um, three persons of interest. One was Merlino, um, one was um, Robert Garante, and the third was Robert Gentile. And apologies if I'm mispronouncing those names. Um, Garante's widow confirmed in 2012 that she had seen her husband giving a a, a portrait to Gentile. And she said that from her recollection, it didn't actually match any of the ones from the Gardner heist, but does kind of support this idea that he may have been involved in, in stolen art cases.
I saw a really interesting article um, that was released on the website Mental Floss in conjunction with the, the 25th anniversary, um, an article about uh, Robert Whitman, who was a, is a uh, retired FBI agent who documented his experience searching for stolen art in uh, his 2011 book called Priceless, How I Went Undercover to Rescue the World's Stolen Treasures. Um, Whitman began working for the FBI in 1998 in its property crime unit and was actually one of the founding members of the art crime team, um, which was established in 2004, primarily to deal with the looting that occurred in the Iraq Museum in 2003. So um, 2004 was when there first started being this this um, unit in the FBI that was particularly devoted to, to art crime and art theft. In 2006, Whitman um, followed leads from French police um, to two men in who were members uh, or suspected members of the Corsican mob, um, and police suspected that they um, had potentially been involved with the Gardner heist because one of the items that was stolen, and it's kind of an odd item uh, when compared to the, um, the the sort of monumental iconic works um, that, that are so often referred to, um, but an additional item they stole was a finial off the top of a Napoleonic flag. A Napoleon was from Corsica, so um, that was, I'm sure it's not the only reason, but one of the reasons that um, the, the French police thought these men may have been tied to the heist. While meeting with uh, these two men in Miami, um, and, and Whitman was, was uh, posing as a gray market dealer, um, one of the suspects said that he could get him a Vermeer, uh, a Rembrandt, and a Monet that was stolen from a U.S. museum. Um, and, and I should say that Whitman, in his book, he doesn't think that these two men were actually involved with a theft, um, but they may have connections to where the, the artwork is now. Why is it always Miami? <laughs> As a Miami native, yeah, like, yeah. why why does it always have to be home sweet home that you know these like you know trafficking and stolen gray market, art, stolen cocaine. art, cocaine, yeah. drugs, guns. Um, so eventually Whitman's cover was blown. Uh, he still thinks uh, the works are actually in Europe that they're dispersed among various places, and he also has claimed that the FBI really has no idea who the original thieves were. Um, but the FBI has pushed back against these claims and, and um, reiterate that he doesn't work for the FBI anymore. Uh, he retired uh, uh, a little while ago and now runs his own security um, firm. Um, just about a week and a half after the 25th anniversary, there was a story reported by um, Breitbart News that the heist had been solved, that they knew who the um, that the FBI had had um, had announced that they knew who the thieves were. Um, pretty much immediately, the FBI denied this claim. Um, but the story identified uh, Demuzio and and Reisfelder um, as as the two as the two thieves, and I mentioned them earlier. Now, just this past Friday, uh, on April 17th, the FBI arrested Gentili um, for selling a gun while on probation. And this was announced in the New York Times, and the New York Times um, reaffirmed that Gentili had been thought to be connected with, with the heist for, for years now. Um, and, and following that, that Friday, in, uh, 
that Friday incident, uh, over the weekend, the Boston Globe reported that the FBI has a recording of Gentile admitting to an undercover FBI agent that he had two of the stolen paintings and he could sell sell them for $500,000. Now, it's not clear whether or not he meant uh, he could sell them for, or he would sell them for $500,000 each or $500,000 total. Um, Either way, way less than they're worth. Um, when uh, the agent, when this undercover agent um, asked him, kind of pressed him and asked him why he wouldn't just take the $5 million reward money, uh, Gentili said he thought that the authorities would come after him anyway. And he had had run-ins issues. He'd been in prison um, for uh, many years and he's 79 years old. Um, and Gentili had, had been questioned about the heist uh, and the paintings in, in 2012. And, and he had pretty much failed the polygraph test. So um, he's definitely someone that is still in the mix as a, as a possible uh, suspect, I guess, or, or still a person of interest, at least. Not that polygraph tests are at all really uh, Of course, no. <laughs> but just another little bit of data that potentially right. might be relevant. As you can see, there have been a lot of new stories that have come uh, that have come about uh, potential new leads, arrests, so forth, um, just in the past month, just since the 25th anniversary. And um, I think that's one of the things that the FBI has encouraged is is uh, making this this uh, this instance, this theft, very public. Um, uh, with the potential that generating information, generating awareness, um, uh, anybody who has seen these works or is or is aware of of their current whereabouts may um, uh, may come forward and offer information that will lead to their being recovered and and going back on the walls um, of the gardener. Uh, one interesting thing I do want to mention uh, last is that uh, if you go on the gardener's website, they paired with um, Google Art project and um, they have this this sort of uh, um, virtual tour um, of the museum in which you can see uh, those empty frames and learn about the the works and um, and uh, their significance um, the works that have been stolen so definitely check that out as always we thank you for listening and we encourage you to Go to our website, www.arthistory.today, where you can find our State of the Arts blog and view a slideshow of images that were referred to, um, the Rembrandt and many others as well. Um, In this episode, you can also find links to all of the um, major uh, sources, um, especially news articles that we refer to in this podcast. You can also give us your feedback um, or find more information as it continues to come out on our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash arthistorytoday, or by following our Twitter account, which is arthisttoday, A-R-T-H-I-S-T-T-O-D-A-Y.